You are listening to a special pre-recorded episode of The Four Persons Show. Though we will not be taking live calls tonight, we want to answer any questions or comments you may have. Drop us a line at email at thefourpersons.com. Welcome to The Tangled Knot with Deb Rojas. With the help of our Heavenly Mother Mary, undoer of knots, Deb seeks to help us untangle the knots we find and often cause in our own lives. Deborah Rojas, MS, is a psychotherapist and mental health counselor at Integrity Counseling Services. A graduate of Divine Mercy University, Deborah utilizes a variety of approaches within a Catholic Christian framework, depending on the needs of the client. These approaches include cognitive behavioral therapy, internal family systems, emotion-focused therapy, forgiveness therapy, person-centered therapy, gestalt techniques, and narrative therapy. She specializes in women's issues, relationship trauma, spiritual trauma, physical and sexual trauma, anxiety and depression, and grief and loss. She also works with priests, pastors, and seminarians, drawing from her background of over 20 years of working in both Protestant and Catholic churches. For more information about Deb and Integrity Counseling, please visit them at IntegrityCounselingPA.com. Once again, the address is IntegrityCounselingPA.com. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Deb Rojas. Hello and welcome to The Tangled Knot. I am Deb Rojas, your host. Uh, You know, this is a show where we get together and we talk about the many different methods and tangles and and issues of life and seek to work them out in ways that are ordered, that, uh, that help us to love God better, to love each other better, and to understand and love ourselves properly. Um, and a lot of times on the show, we talk about things from a counseling perspective, as I am a, a counselor with Integrity Restored. Uh, but tonight, I want to put on a different hat and um, talk about liturgy and worship, evangelism, and uh, with a friend of mine who is a, a liturgist in the, the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. Um, James, welcome to the show. Hello, everybody. So James Griffin is here tonight joining us with um, his organization, the Durandus Institute. And uh, we'll hear about that. We'll hear about the ordinariate. Uh, we'll hear about um, the installation of Father Sam Keyes at St. John the Baptist in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania, the ordinariate parish there. And, um, you know, the unique thing about um, the, the ordinariate is that it's full of converts. And um, I'm a convert. I celebrated 10 years last week, actually, July 27th. James, how long have you been Catholic? Uh, I've been Catholic since 2005, so that would be uh, 18 uh, years. 18 years. Mm-hmm. So getting close to 20. Yeah. How old were you when you came into the church? I was 18 years old. I was in my last year of high school. Hmm. Um. I was received as a Catholic about uh, 
I would say a month and three weeks after my 18th birthday. Wow. So was that during the Easter season or no? No, that was I. Uh, that was Christmas Eve, where I received all three of the sacraments of initiation at the same time, back in my hometown of San Antonio, Texas, at the Church of Our Lady of the Atonement. So, for our listeners who are most used to having people receive into the church when they're baptized and confirmed and all on Easter vigil. Can you explain how it's possible for that to happen outside of the Easter season? Yes. Well, um, for most people who come into the Catholic faith, they are asked to undergo a period of catechesis and preparation uh, leading up to uh, the uh, Easter vigil. And that is, yes, liturgically, uh, that is the optimal time uh, if one is going to receive uh, the sacrament of baptism as an adult. Mm-hmm. However, in my particular case, uh, when I approached the um, I approached the Church of Our Lady of the Atonement, uh, which, by the way, uh, is the first of the so-called Anglican Use Pastoral Provision mm. parishes within the Catholic Church. Um, this is a precursor to the Ordinariate, which mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure you'll ask me about in a second. But very briefly, I will explain that this is. Uh, this was an initiative under Pope St. John Paul II right. in 1983 when he authorized the first communities for former Anglicans uh, and other Protestants to uh, come into the full communion of the Catholic Church while retaining certain aspects of their worship traditions mm-hmm. and uh, allowing their married former Anglican priests to be ordained as Catholic priests. Um, but there was no... Uh, jurisdiction like the ordinary to tie these all together. So these parishes were under the local diocese. So, so they, Our Lady of the Atonement of, was... Mm-hmm. They operated like a personal parish then? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That is exactly the term for mm-hmm. Our Lady of the Atonement at that time. So what made Our Lady of the Atonement um, attractive to you as an 18-year-old? And how did that factor into your conversion? Um, well, um, my father was an Episcopalian, uh, and my mother is still a Seventh-day Adventist. Um, hmm. And when I was growing up, I was familiar with both traditions, but I really mm-hmm. spent most of my upbringing under the Seventh-day Adventist church. However, the Adventist church like many Protestant denominations, does not practice infant baptism. And right. so when I was getting older, I was asked to uh, receive baptism in the Adventist church. But before I uh, decided to do that, I uh, wanted to hold off for a bit so that I could, uh, st- yeah, I could study uh, the Christian faith and... Uh, evaluate other churches for myself. Hmm. Um, and so I did that um, when I was around 16 years old. And I um, uh, I uh, came to the belief that uh, the Adventist church was not the authentic faith passed down from the apostles. Mm-hmm. I felt that there was a strong disconnect between the, uh, between the Christian faith as 
practice in Adventism uh, as opposed to the apostolic faith handed down through the centuries, um, which I already knew something about because of my uh, general interest in history, even as a teenager, hmm. uh, especially uh, especially the history of the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. And so studying the early church fathers and the medieval scholastics and uh, and so on, and then even more uh, more recent theologians uh, from the Reformation and post-Reformation period, mm-hmm. I uh, I came to the firm belief that um, that uh, the tr- the the true faith of the apostles was to be found elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and to make a very long story short, uh, through uh, my reading, but also through the experience of the liturgy, which I found when I came to uh, Our Lady of the Atonement mm-hmm. uh, Church, um, uh, uh, there was the experiential uh, uh, knowledge that uh, tied in with uh, the faith that I had read about as it was practiced through history, mm-hmm. and also I came to greatly appreciate the this par- parish's um, zeal for the faith because so many of those uh, worshiping there were converts mm-hmm. uh, from Protestant churches, and the solid preaching of the founding pastor, um, which was very much in keeping with the uh, the Protestant tradition of solid preaching, as mm-hmm. you and I both know. Uh, um, oh, but yeah. it was very, yes, but it was very nice to be able to uh, have the best of all worlds within the fullness of the Catholic faith. So you were an unusual 18-year-old. <laughs> I suppose. Uh, I still had some normal 18-year-old interests. No doubt. I know movies are one of the things that you really love also. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um. And yet the Mass in and of itself is a great drama. That's right, yes. Um, Tells the best I don't want to take that analogy too far, mm-hmm. but uh, there is certainly uh, an element of drama and mystery in mm-hmm. the liturgy, which our medieval forefathers in the faith would have no problem acknowledging. So when you came to Atonement... Had you been to an Episcopal Mass with your dad? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. So I was familiar, I was very familiar with uh, the various expressions of uh, uh, the Book of Common Prayer, which at mm-hmm. that time the normative version in the United States was the 1979 Book of Common Prayer in Rights 1 and Right 2. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the benefit of our listeners, um, Right 1 is the traditional English language version of the of the Book of Common Prayer, and right to is the contemporary English version. So could you give us an example of some of the language from right one? Sure. Um, the, the very first obvious one would be when making the response to the priest's dialogue, the Lord be with you, uh, instead of saying, and with your spirit, it would be, and with thy spirit, mm-hmm. which is actually not uh, which is actually not the uh, 
the formal way of addressing somebody, but is the intimate form. Huh. Uh, so you think of the and thou, of course, in our, uh, in our modern uh, usage of English, we associate that with a more formal mm-hmm. uh, way of speaking. But if you think about it uh, in another way, to use the the uh, the the or thou form uh, mm-hmm. shows uh, a level of uh, of intimacy, mm-hmm. like uh, speaking to speaking to uh, one's father or mm-hmm. a beloved one. Mm-hmm. Which but, when, uh, yeah, if, so the priest is in yeah, so speaking to uh, yeah. that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that and. Uh, Speaking to uh, somebody as you in that context uh, means either that is uh, the formal, as in addressing one's social superior, or mm-hmm. addressing somebody in the, pl- in the plural, which is why mm-hmm. the priest says to the people, the Lord be with you, as in mm-hmm. with y'all, those who are assembled. <laughs> All y'all. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Right. Um, but the response is, and with thy spirit to one particularly. And indeed, yes. Yeah. Um, so that's why um, that's why you know going deeper into the the tradition of hieratic English or the mm-hmm. English of the prayer book. Yes, it is set apart from the everyday speech of the people, but at the same time, um, when uh, this kind of language becomes second nature then uh, it becomes apparent why it's, uh, it's so treasured by mm-hmm. those who, uh, you know, who were brought up uh, in that, uh, in, in that, uh, like uh, almost a dialect. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, um, I grew up Baptist and the King James version was what everybody memorized and preached from. And, um, you know, there was a lot of simple people who memorized the King James and really like understood it and also kind of prayed in that type of language because the scriptures informed their prayer. Um, so it's kind of it's kind of fascinating to see that there's even in in other Protestant circles a similar kind of prayer language because of the the older English scripture version. That's right. Yes, if you uh, if you uh, you know immerse yourself in the language of uh, the King James Bible, for example, mm-hmm. or the Book of Common Prayer, traditional uh, form of English, uh, eventually, especially if you grow up with it, it uh, informs even spontaneous prayer to some mm-hmm. degree. Mm-hmm. So I I recall the um, the music program at Atonement being pretty spectacular. Oh yes, um, that also it helps uh, form me in uh, sacred music. Mm-hmm. So at Our Lady of the Atonement, when I worshipped there, uh, there was choir mass every Monday through Friday, which is unbelievable to imagine for any church in the United States. Really, um, I, I'm having a hard time wrapping my my brain around that. As a choir director, a choir yeah. mass Monday through Friday is that's intense. Right. Um, 
nevertheless, they uh, are able to do it because uh, every student in their school mm -hmm. from first through 12th grade has to participate in a choir program, even if it's a very basic one. And then they can divide up the uh, the different liturgies for the week that mm -hmm. way. And besides uh, daily choral mass, these uh, students are also brought up with um, periodically the singing of uh, the divine office, particularly mm -hmm. evening prayer, which in the Anglican tradition is called evensong. One of my favorite prayer times. The settings it's of quite the, a. Uh, go ahead. Yes, it's quite a um, it's quite a rich tradition to inherit. One which uh, those who uh, grow up around Evensong, even if they uh, are not uh, practicing Christians, uh, such as in England, where uh, so many of the great cathedrals and collegiate chapels. Uh, maintain a, uh, a professional choir for the singing of even song mm -hmm. multiple times a week. It is still an attraction for uh, for people to come and attend. Uh, it becomes part of the landscape, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, although that's not something that is known well in in this country, in the United mm -hmm. States, I uh, I hope with my with my work in liturgy to eventually be able to develop a uh, a community with a routine where even song is sung on a regular basis mm -hmm. and becomes such a fixture that uh, people in that area will just know to wander into church at a certain time and, mm -hmm. you know, get to experience that. We have so many wonderful settings of the Magnificat, Mary's Prayer, and also the New Dimitis, which is Simeon's Prayer, that are part of even song. Oh, yes. Um, and since uh, you mentioned that, um, <laughs> I will I'll highlight here that uh, a number of those settings were written by the great composer William Byrd, mm -hmm. uh, whose death we, we observe the 400th anniversary of his death this year. That's right. Byrd died in 1623 um, on the 4th of July which means that in this country it was impossible to have a proper observance on the actual day of his death. <laughs> However, uh, I do have a number of uh, commemorations planned through my organization, the Durandus Institute for Sacred Liturgy and Music, which will commemorate Bird's death in uh, three different cities. Uh, so there, uh, there uh, was a mass, on um, August the 3rd in Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. at the Crypt of the National Shrine. And in uh, Philadelphia, there are plans to have uh, an even song at St. Agatha St. James Church in September, yeah, uh, September mm -hmm. the 8th, the Nativity of Mary. Uh, and finally, on Am September the 25th, <laughs> uh, you are if you ask nicely. <laughs> so we'll come back to that. Uh, but yes, and then finally, uh, in New York City on September the 25th, 
which is, would be the observance of the Feast of Our Lady of Walsingham, bumped one day from Sunday the 24th. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will have an even song, uh, again, using the ordinariate's office. Uh, and that will particularly have um, the great service mm-hmm. of William Byrd's arrangement of mm-hmm. uh, Magnificat and Nugdimidus. With a professional choir in an incredible setting, that will be glorious. Yes. Um, it will be one for the ages. I always have uh, a mind-blowing experience at mm-hmm. the Church of St. Vincent Ferrer on the Upper yeah. East Side of Manhattan. Um, that so, The architecture there is designed especially for um, the, uh, an English Catholic aesthetic mm-hmm. with the root beam, um, and the mm-hmm. long fire saws and the mm-hmm. various altarpieces and other um, design features. So you mentioned Durandis. Can you tell us a little bit more about what is the Durandis Institute and why a project that focuses on liturgy? Okay. The Durandis Institute is named after William Durandis, a medieval French bishop who wrote a massive treatise on the symbolism of the liturgy in the Mass and the Divine Office. This mm-hmm. was one of the most hand-copied books of the medieval world after the Bible. Um, it was one of the first books printed on the printing press after the printing press was developed in Europe. And to honor Durandus's contribution to liturgy, I... Uh, I, na- I gave the name of the institute after him, mm-hmm. as well as to highlight mm, what I hoped would be the the institute's specialty among other liturgical organizations of uh, research and presentation of the historic medieval liturgies of the Western Church, such as the uh, the Sarum rite, which was practiced mm-hmm. in. England before the Reformation, the Mozarabic Rite in Spain, the Ambrosian Rite in Milan, and the rites of the religious orders, such as the Dominican Rite, the Carmelite Rite, and so on. So what makes these rites so special? Why highlight them? Um, the, the, the historic rites of the Western Church uh, have much in common with the the extraordinary form or the traditional Latin Mass as we know it, which was codified by the Council of Trent or, mm-hmm. or in the aftermath of the Council of Trent in the year 1570 under Pope uh, St. Pius V. However, there's a certain richness to the medieval liturgies, which was uh, perceived uh, by many in the Reformation and Counter-Reformation eras as um, uh, perhaps overly gilding the lily or being overly exuberant, for example, in the Sarum Rite, um, in, a, in, a, in a celebration such as Vespers on Great mm-hmm. Feasts, there would be the four rulers of the choir in their copes and, <laughs> uh, and staffs, uh, or in a, you know, having the the celebrating priest and his assistant uh, sense the altar, not only at the, not only the main altar at Magnificat as we are used to in Vespers now, but also all of the side altars throughout mm-hmm. the church. 
or having processions with not just one processional cross, but uh, three processional crosses, mm-hmm. or having the big ostrich bands, or, you know, I could go on forever. Uh, the point so is, this, is that... This is what we the, did. The tr- <laughs> yes, yes. The, the inaugural event of the Durandus Institute was a, a special celebration of Vespers according to the Sarum Rite, um, on Candlemas Eve of 2020, which was shortly before the whole world, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of fell apart. Mm-hmm. Um, it was cool. very well received. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, uh, our unofficial count was uh, 700 people in the church. It was, uh, so Candlemas Eve is February the 1st. Uh, so, and this was also the day before the Super Bowl. So it was very cold in the church. It was raining outside. Um, but nevertheless, because as people filled in, the church started warming up. I remember when the choir was warming up way before Vespers, uh, singers could see their own breath emitting through their mouths. Mm-hmm. But that added a certain kind of authenticity because, of course, you know, in Medieval England at the time thought the Sarum Rite was at its at its height. Uh, the normal, you know, experience of liturgies like this was in a large stone church with certainly no central heating. Um, in fact, in the medieval English church, it was normal during the cold season uh, at mass to put a uh, a bowl of hot water on the altar so that the priest could dip his fingers in the hot water while celebrating mass uh, so that he, you know, so that they wouldn't be too numb and he could still offer the Holy sacrifice. Mm. It would have been nice to have something like that for the singers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll make a note of that for next time and there will be a next time. Um, Wonderful. I look forward to it. Yeah. I've just got to make more planning. I mean, that, that whole Mm -hmm. uh, event uh, shaved off, you know, probably, uh, three months of my lifespan yeah, I was in, going to the, ask uh, in the stress of it all. Absolutely. How much time and effort, um, even money, like how, what does it take to, to put on something like that? Right. Uh, for major liturgies like that, uh, they don't know, they don't just happen. There is an incredible amount of planning and coordination behind the scenes. Um, and yes, money too. Um, it can be thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my, uh, you know, my, my, my institute is always, uh, is always strapped for cash, uh, because, uh, Durandus does so much, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, pro bono, um, for the good of the faithful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm happy to do that, but, uh, uh, I always welcome, uh, contributions to, Help my uh, help my work continue on further. We will put a link with the show in the show notes so that listeners can go and uh, and donate towards that and also know about the upcoming events. Okay, that would be great. Thank you. Absolutely. I had a great question for you and I just forgot it. Um, oh, this morning we were doing something Durandis related. That's right. Yeah. So this is an example of uh, some of the work that the Institute um, does besides just putting on uh, grand liturgical celebrations with 
so the greatest music of the uh, of the Christian tradition. Uh, besides that, there is a lot of work that goes in uh, providing consultation to our priests, uh, deacons, uh, religious, and you know, uh, lay faithful mm-hmm. on uh, on how to uh, how to improve uh, this the situation of liturgy and sacred music at the local level at the at the parish level um Mm -hmm. so i don't i don't just deal with specialty liturgy such as Mm -hmm. uh you know ancient rites or not just (laughs) the extraordinary form not just the Uh ordinary mass but i do as much as i can to help normal people uh normal priests with uh, offering the mass, the ordinary form mass, as we sometimes mm-hmm. call it, the modern Roman rite, uh, mm-hmm. and the liturgy of the hours and devotions as reverently as possible, um, in continuity with tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, uh, that's right. Um, so Deb, you and I provided consultation at a parish, mm-hmm. uh, I won't name where it is in case uh, uh, Father <laughs> feels too embarrassed, but uh, you know it was a it was a great experience. It really uh, was listening to listening to this holy priest, you know, talk about his his journey mm-hmm. um, and you know and where uh, right you know the parish as he inherited it and um, you know how much uh, he's done since then and how much more he hopes to do in the future. Uh, but, you know, the, even if a pastor of a parish in the Catholic Church has the final authority, it is still incredibly hard for any priest to do the good work that needs to be done just by himself. Mm-hmm. And that is where the guidance of a professional liturgist, a professional musician, and I know a professional liturgist in the current context sounds kind of like a bad word <laughs> uh, because that you know, there are certainly many awful examples of what uh, those could be. But well, you know the nevertheless, joke is, right? You know the joke the about joke the, liturgist, is, the liturgist and the terrorist? Oh, of course, yes. But you can repeat it for everybody else. <laughs> well, you can negotiate <laughs> with the terrorist. Right. Yes. So I uh, I can be terribly inflexible about you know things that are really important. Uh-huh. Uh huh. <laughs> uh, I laugh because I, I beyond just <laughs> as the director of liturgy and music in a parish for three years, I there were certain things that really were inflexible, but mm-hmm. it's not really understood the nature of the importance of it is not really understood. And so things are treated as flexible, even though they're not. So, yes. So in the world of liturgy, there are, uh, you know, there are things that must be done so that the liturgy is valid, right? So that the sacrament is truly confected. The bread and wine become the true body and blood of Christ. Uh, and that's, I think, you know, for most of our listeners, that's obvious. However, there's also uh, another level, of which is uh, things which are licit or illicit in the liturgy. 
meaning that uh, something that is illicit does not affect the validity of the sacrament. Mm-hmm. However, it is against what the what the church has prescribed for what is becoming in worship. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of being a Catholic is uh, acknowledging that we are not the masters of the sacred liturgy, mm-hmm. but we are in servants. And that is true even of priests. It is true even of bishops, and it is true even of the Pope. Mm-hmm. Good reminder. Thank you. Um, that leads me, that leads me to my next question, which is also, I say it very, very tongue in cheek, but, um, is the ordinary really Catholic? <laughs> <laughs> well, I get that question a lot. Uh, um, so I'll give you a serious answer. Uh, the serious answer is yes, the ordinary is Catholic. Now, earlier in this, uh, in this talk, I described the Anglican use pastoral provision under Pope. St. John Paul II. So uh, what Deb and I mean when we speak of the ordinaria is that entity or three entities created by Pope Benedict XVI Mm -hmm. uh, as nationwide dioceses of a sort for former Anglicans to come into the fullness of the Catholic Church while, you know, coming in with their congregations, Mm -hmm. with their clergy, uh, sometimes keeping the same name of mm-hmm. a of a community um, and retaining many of their worship traditions, which were done in on an experimental level in the beginning in the eighties with the pastoral provision mm-hmm. uh, now the ordinariate was the next step so it, it is common for people to come across the ordinariate on the internet or walk into an ordinary at church by accident, just looking for a place to attend mass on Sundays and being confused, wondering if the ordinary is really Catholic or if it's another of the many breakaway groups on the internet, which claim the name of Catholic, which he will even assert being in full communion with the Pope, the Holy See, but for this or that reason are not actually, but, um, if you were to open the Catholic directory in the United States, which is the master book that contains all of the names of all of the different Catholic churches mm-hmm. and uh, approved Catholic institutions in the United States, uh, that's including the Eastern Rite churches, um, you will see the Ordinariate of the Chair of St. Peter, which is the Ordinariate ministering to the United States and Canada. Mm-hmm. You will see our cathedral and chancery in Houston, Texas there. You will see all of our parishes and other communities uh, you know, around the country listed there, the names of their priests. And that, you know, appearing in the Catholic directory is one of the signs that lets you know that we are fully part of the Catholic Church. Our priests can celebrate Mass in regular diocesan parishes, or they can come celebrate with the local bishop at the Chrism Mass or any other time that they choose. Um, regular Catholics you know, who are part of the local diocese can fulfill their Sunday obligation at a Catholic church. They're allowed to uh, make their confessions at our uh, parishes and so on and so forth. So uh, the short version is that, uh, yes, we are really Catholic. Thanks be to God to Pope Benedict the 16th. 
Amen. Isn't that the truth? Um, thanks be mm-hmm. to God. Yeah, because he really did pave the way. Um, and if you can hear the piano in the background, yes, I am at home tonight. <laughs> Recording from home and not my <laughs> office. So there is some of the joys of some of the joys of family life taking place here. Um, I did tell the kids I was recording, but I think they might have forgotten. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it, it is. It's, it's absolutely wonderful that this avenue has been opened up because so many people have come into the church as a result and continue to be brought into through this evangelistic effort. Um, so the uh, we have an ordinary parish here in the Philadelphia area, um, St. John the Baptist. Uh, let's see if we have time. I don't know if we have time for a little history on that or not. Maybe not today. Um, maybe I'll have Father Keys on. Uh, but it's maybe if you could tell us a little bit about um, our new priest and uh, okay. what's going on at St. John the Baptist. Okay. Well, um, St. John the Baptist, which is the ordinary parish serving the Philadelphia metropolitan area, uh, we received our new pastor, Father Stan Keyes, um, in, in July, and uh, there are preparations for his formal installation by the Bishop of the Ordinariate, uh, Bishop Lopes, that I have been working on for, well, quite some time. Um, but uh, Father Keyes was a former Episcopal priest, uh, and so when he came into the fullness of the Catholic Church through the ordinariate, uh, he mm-hmm. was approved for holy orders, was ordained a priest, even though he is uh, married with uh, several small children. Um, right, he has five. Will not be, one. Mm-hmm. Yes, so this is, this is not our parish's first married priest, but it is our first married priest with small children, which changes the whole dynamic of the parish in an interesting way mm-hmm. that we have not had before. Yes. Um, uh, so there's a, there's a, um, a, a sense of, uh, it's kind of a shakeup, which I, which I greatly appreciate. Um, you know, there's a, a sense of uh, rejuvenation, uh, a new wave of energy, which um, as somebody who, you know, I coordinate a lot of volunteers, I help coordinate a lot of volunteers at St. John the Baptist, and I'm trying to, uh, you know, frankly, exploit as much goodwill as possible and, you know, new, uh, uh, newfound energy that people have because there's a lot of excitement about what we can do in the future um, with our, you know, small community. Most ordinary parishes, especially outside of Texas, where, um, you know, the early pastoral provision parishes began back in the 80s, but uh, mm-hmm. those are... You know, many of those are big, normal-sized parishes, but for the most of the rest of uh, the United States and Canada, they're very small. Um, and so uh, that means that there are not as many people to, you know, tap for, um, you know, uh, volunteering. Uh, so I, I do try to be careful uh, to help Father with not burning anybody out, you know, spreading, mm-hmm. the, spreading the volunteer work around. Mm-hmm. It's a careful balancing act. But... Um, yes, I, uh, uh, people at St. John the Baptist know that, uh, you know, they can expect me to call on them for help with this or that on, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, yes, on a semi-frequent basis. Yes, I know that um, 
with his wife expecting their sixth. The the women in the parish are actively getting together meal trains and and all of that um, to support their family. Both father and Gretchen um, have a background in singing and choral music, and uh, so they bring a lot of gifts and appreciation of music and liturgy to the parish. Um, so in addition with uh, you know we have a phenomenal organist with Bill Gatons. Who's been with the parish for how long, James? Since the beginning, uh, since before the um, the parish of St. John the Baptist was created, when there were two separate ordinary communities meeting right. in separate uh, churches and separate areas of the metro area, and Bill was serving both of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's really he's an incredible musician and a faithful servant. So it's um, it really is it's a it's a it's a parish that is alive and growing, um, and I had Claire uh, Finnegan on here, the head of our Catechesis of the Good Shepherd program, talking about um, how we catechize our kids, and um, so it's uh, lots of families, lots of <laughs> lots of babies and and little ones. Um, what are some of the distinctions of the ordinary liturgy. Okay. Well, you know, earlier I spoke about the the use of the language of the prayer book. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a few unique prayers in the in the ordinary form of mass, which are derived from the Book of Common Prayer, uh, that don't have a direct um, they don't have a direct analog with the either the ordinary form or the modern Roman rite. Or the mm-hmm. extraordinary form, the traditional Latin Mass. Uh, to give one example, there is the congregational prayer, which is said uh, before communion by those who are about to receive, called the Prayer of Humble Access. Mm-hmm. Um, that prayer begins as, we do not presume to come to this thy table of merciful mm-hmm. Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold mm-hmm. and great mercies. When you hear that kind of language, Mm-hmm. You, you know, you you know that you're about to enter into something that's very serious. And but at very the same special. time, at the time that at the time that this prayer was written, which was it was composed by um, Thomas Cranmer, the mm-hmm. Archbishop of Canterbury, who uh, who helped orchestrate the split from the Catholic Church into the Church of England. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I want to point out something that helps us understand what the ordinariate is about here. This beyond just the text, because the text is very beautiful and it can be, it can be read completely in a Catholic sense, but it was written by somebody who we, you know, as faithful Catholics now understand was frankly a bad man. This is somebody who, um, you know, did a, something that was, frankly, wrong. That's, mm-hmm. you know, helping facilitate the separation of uh, the Church of England from mm-hmm. Rome, mm-hmm. Uh, helping uh, facilitate the separation of uh, King Henry VIII from his true wife, Catherine of Aragon. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, what is in the mind of Rome is that you can take something that was done for the wrong reasons 
or something that was, you know, done uh, in sin, but you can baptize it, as it were, and graft it mm-hmm. into the uh, into the fabric of the of the Catholic Church. And that is mm-hmm. what uh, that is that is uh, the 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 lifeline that Pope Benedict has given to uh, Anglicans who want to be faithful to the gospel, but can no longer uh, you can no longer practice it, you know, within their uh, within their churches. Mm-hmm. Yes, and so now we can pray it within the context of the Catholic Mass. It has become truly Indeed. become a Catholic, a Catholic prayer. Well, thank you, James. That is a uh, hopefully that has given our listeners a little taste of what uh, just the beauty and the glory of the reverence of an ordinary liturgy, and um, whether it's even song or mass. Um, Check it out and see if there's a parish near you. Uh, if you're in the Philadelphia area, St. John the Baptist in Bridgeport has Mass at 10 a.m. on Sundays. And um, Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, levels 1, 2, and 3 available, and they're all phenomenal. Um, if you have not listened to it, check out my interview with Claire Finnegan, and you can learn more about Catechesis of the Good Shepherd through that. Um, anything else, James, that you wanted to put a plug in for the Durandus Institute before we wrap up? Okay. Well, um, let's see. Um, besides, uh, those events that I mentioned, um, we are currently planning to have a, uh, a Vespers, a solemn Vespers in the extraordinary form, um, at, uh, old St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City on September the 14th for the Feast of the Exaltation of the Ooh, Holy Cross. Yes. Um, wow. This event also is in conjunction with the first day of the week-long Festival of San Genero uh, in the Little Italy District. <laughs> um, so it will be quite, quite a feast quite in festive. multiple senses of the word. Yes. Yes. Oh, fine. You can nourish your soul, nourish your body. Mm-hmm. Have a lot of fun. Oh, that's and, um, Yes. Um, and uh, even though it may seem irreverent, I, pro- I promise you it's not, but um, after a uh, one of the several pontifical masses that I've assisted at with a bishop, you know, when a bishop celebrates uh, the mass, um, you know, in his full regalia, uh, this is mm-hmm. after a pontifical mass in the extraordinary form, uh, you know, he said that... Uh, uh, he had a lot of fun, but it's okay because, you know, <laughs> liturgy can be fun, even though mm-hmm. it is done well. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we did mention our bishop here, Bishop Lopes. Is he still, um, is he still on the Divine Worship Committee of the USCCB? Yes, as of now, Bishop Lopes is still the, uh, the chair of the uh, of the Committee for Worship for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Mm-hmm. And so he helps oversee things like, for example, the upcoming new uh, and more accurate translation of the Liturgy of the Hours, 
the mm-hmm. modern form of the divine office, um, that all priests and uh, uh, deacons and religious are bound to say in one form or another every day. Um, you know, he also helped develop guidelines for uh, parish observances of the uh, you know, after the death of Pope Benedict XVI. So you know, at St. John the Baptist, we had a solemn requiem mass with uh, uh, the help of the Durandus Institute and in putting together the uh, Requiem Five Voices by Cristobal de Morales. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used some of Bishop Lopes's guidelines in how we would uh, properly mourn the Holy Father mm. after after that. So um, in that role, Bishop Lopes does exercise uh, um, you know a considerable amount of influence for good mm-hmm. or uh, you know not just within the ordinariate, but for the, the whole Catholic Church throughout the United States. That's right. That's right. Yes. I wanted to put in a little plug for him also. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's wonderful. Love him. He's such a wonderful bishop. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those of you who would like to get a hold of me, um, counseling-wise, you can do that through 610-601-9781. Uh, that's Integrity Counseling Services in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. And um, thank you all for listening, and um, I look forward to your feedback. Deb Rojas Counseling at gmail.com. That's Deb R O J A S Counseling at gmail.com. And um, God bless you, and have a wonderful night. Mary, undoer of not, pray for us. You just heard the Tangle Knot with Deb Rojas on the Four Persons Network. Real sound Catholic counseling that helps us to fulfill the greatest commandment to love God with our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole strength, and, yes, our whole mind. We will see you next week for another wonderful show with Deb Rojas. The Four Persons Inc. is a registered 501c3 nonprofit. All rights reserved. Any unauthorized use of this content without the permission of the Four Persons Inc. and our hosts is prohibited and subject to legal action. Thank you.